0: coming in but um, this is a a jam-packed session so I don't want us to uh, waste any time Um, so first of all welcome to this session on taking happiness seriously can we should we would it matter if we did effective altruism is driven by the pursuit of maximizing impact but what counts as impact one approach is to focus directly on improving people's happiness how they feel during and about their lives in this session uh, Michael Plant and Mark Fabian will discuss how and whether to do this and what it means for the project of doing good. So first we'll have Michael Plant um, who will present the positive case on why happiness matters and how it can be measured. Michael is the founder and director of the Happier, Happier Lives Institute which is a non-profit research institute that searches for the most cost-effective ways to increase global well-being. He's also a postdoctoral research fellow at the Wellbeing Research Centre in Oxford and he has a PhD in philosophy from Oxford um, and his thesis which, thesis, which was on philosophical issues related to effective altruism, was supervised by Peter Singer and Hilary Graves. Uh, we'll then hear from Mark Fabian, who will act as a critical discussant and highlight key weaknesses and challenges with the idea of taking happiness seriously. Mark is an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Warwick and a fellow of the Bennett Institute for Public Policy at Cambridge. He recently published a book titled A Theory of Subjective Wellbeing with Oxford University Press and works on well-being from an interdisciplinary point of view with a focus on policy dimensions. He generally takes a politics and public management first approach rather than an analytical f- philosophy and welfare economics first approach, which is often more common in academia and EA. Um, and then after we've heard from both Mark and uh, Michael, we'll have some time for discussion. Um, and as always, you can submit questions for the speakers via the app. Uh, but now please join me in welcoming our speakers
1: well, it's, it's like pride brighter than they thought it would be uh, hello everyone thanks very much for coming so let me start you with a real life moral dilemma for a thousand pounds you could double the annual income of one household living in, in absolute poverty uh, you could provide 250 bed nets, which would save, uh, in expectation, uh, one-sixth of a child's life or one-sixth chance to save a child. You could treat 10 women for depression by providing a, a 10-week course of group therapy, or you could deworm over 1,000 children. And, uh, of course, what we want to do is to do the most good, but the question is, how do we know, uh, how, how do we know that we're doing that? Where am I? Oh, okay. Um, and I want to point out there are, there are really two paths to measuring impact here. So there, the first is what I've called the objective indicators approach, which I think is just sort of the default approach that t- society has taken for the last hundred or so years to think about impact. We look at objective measures of well-being, such as health and wealth, and then we make intuitive trade-offs between them. Uh, the sort of example of this um, is, is GDP. That's our sort of default measure of social progress. M- more, more economic activity is good. And then However, this, the objective indicators approach seems to miss something. It seems to miss people's feelings, their happiness, how their lives are going for them. Where is that in the picture? And an alternative then is the subjective well-being approach where we use self-reported measures of, of well-being such as happiness and life satisfaction. Typical uh, a case would be uh, zero to 10, how satisfied are you with your life nowadays? Uh, And so, my proposal in this session is that we should take happiness seriously. We should set the priorities using the evidence on subjective well-being. Trying to work out, okay, where am I pointing out for this? Um, And you might wonder, is this a new radical idea? Well, um, the first steam train, the Colin Brookdale locomotive, was built in 1802. Um, uh, And the idea that we should take happiness seriously is as old as that. So Thomas Jefferson writing in uh, in 1809 said, the care of human life and happiness is the first known legitimate object of good government. Jeremy Bentham writing in 1776 said, the greatest happiness of the greatest number is the foundation of morals and legislation. And looking further back, you have Aristotle who said, the happiness and meaning and the purpose of life is the whole end and aim of human existence. So this idea is old, (laughs) it's older than the steam trade. uh, it, It has real lineage to it having some tr- trouble, troubles with my clicker here. But what is new is that now we have data. So it was only after the Second World War that, um, that, we, that there started to be large-scale surveys uh, of households on, on how their lives are going. So Gallup was founded in 46. In, uh, it's in 1972 that, there are, that two countries start having nationally represented examples of, uh, of subjective well-being. The US Gen- General Social Survey, the, the Gross National Happiness Index in Bhutan um oh these are my these are my old slides never mind um and it, in 2005 the f- there's the first global survey o- o- on well-being there's the gallup world poll which runs in 160 countries surveys 98 percent of the world's population uh in the uh in 2011 the uk starts to measure uh, starts to collect and, and measure data on well-being so we the uk is kind of weirdly enough a world uh, world leader in in measuring well-being we'll hear more about that later Uh, In 2012, there's the first edition of the World Happiness Report, so people sort of quote-unquote know that the Scandinavian countries are the happiest, uh, but in fact it's only been 10 years that this survey's been running, that's just how recent this is. In 2022, um, the UK's Treasury publishes a a framework for how to do policy appraisal in terms of well-being, so not just in pounds and pence, but how to do it in terms of well-being. and now there are 20 countries around the world that measure, uh, the, the, uh, the national governments collect and measure well-being. So this is started not too long ago and now it's really uh, gathering steam, pun permitted. So we now know quite a lot about what happiness, uh, uh, how to measure happiness and, and what drives it. But what I don't think we know so much about is what the priorities are. Uh, so this project of taking happiness seriously hasn't, hasn't yet really Really taken off. We um, and when I was I was looking. Uh, I started looking uh, look into this when uh, I started my PhD in in 2015. And I, I found myself. I really believed in the ideas of effective altruism. We should do the most good we can with our resources. But I also thought that we should take happiness seriously. We should look at the research on on subjective well-being and we should bring them together. They seemed like two obvious ideas that uh, that should be combined. And I was surprised to learn that as far as I could tell, no one really seemed to have. Uh, to have done this before. And that was the, the kind of the project I got started on. Now in retrospect, maybe I shouldn't have been so surprised. I think it would have been difficult um, to do it really much earlier because just there, w- there wouldn't have been the evidence available. But uh, now there is. Uh, and I would to flag there are really two projects to, to think about here. There's the one, there's the kind of the direct impact project. So how can we use happiness research to find better marginal funding opportunities? And then on the big scale, the sort of the, the moonshot is to think about how can we engineer a paradigm shift so that when societies think about social progress, when philanthropists and, and policymakers are thinking about uh, measuring uh, what they do and having impact, that they, t- they put well-being at the heart of that. Um, and because we spend an enormous amount of resources around the sci- in our societies trying to find ways to improve people's lives, then to spend this a little bit better would have enormous impact. I think we can probably spend it quite a bit better. So um, hopefully that has has many of you on board, but. Now let's get uh, get into a little bit more detail. So I think there are, where am I? Okay. Um, So there are uh, three parts, let's let's break down the case. There are, there are three, (laughs) there are three parts to this case in in taking happiness seriously. um, So one is that happiness matters. It's actually something that we we care about. We can measure it by asking people how they feel. Uh, Our predictions about happiness are often wrong. And uh, of these, I think I won't need to do too much to convince you of the first. The second, one I might, the second and third ones I might need to do more on. Uh, and so my, my overall suggestion is that we should take happiness seriously. We should set priorities using the evidence on subjective well-being. Uh, and I want to f- uh, flag here that when I talk about increasing happiness, I'm not just about making happy people happier. This is about making, uh, reducing, re- reducing misery a- as well. And in fact, that's, that's probably where the priorities lie. First happiness matters let's go let's go right back to the start and ask why does happiness matter well well-being definitely matters uh, and well-being is a term used in philosophy to refer to what ultimately or intrinsically makes your life go well and um, wealth and health are only we usually understand them as being instrumentally good for well-being uh, we want to be richer not bec- just because being richer is good but we want to be richer because we think that will improve our well-being And so now we can ask, well, okay, we care about well-being, sure, but what is well-being? And philosophers have three theories uh, of well-being. This comes from from Parfit, the canonical list. So one is preference satisfaction. Your life goes well to the extent that uh, you get what you want. The second is hedonism. Your life goes well uh, to the degree that you're happy. You have overall positive experiences. And the third is the objective list. Uh, There's more to life than happiness and desires. Maybe there are some more objective things, such as uh, love, knowledge, success, meaning. Um, But I don't think, I don't need to convince you that happiness is the only thing that matters to convince you that it matters. You don't need to be a, a, to be a hedonist to be concerned about this. I mean, everyone thinks that happiness matters to some extent. And if you didn't think people's, people suffering their, their, their misery was some part of your moral theory, then I think that would be absurd, monstrous. I think you'd really have missed the point about what ethics is about. Yet, standardly, when we, um, when we put our priorities together, we don't t- tend to kind of directly account for, for the human experience in doing that. So uh, how, do we, how do we do this? Well, one way which is really common and you're probably uh, very familiar with is the quality-adjusted life year. Uh, it's a way of measuring quality and quantity of life. Um, and, w- and the way these, these numbers are, are constructed is that people are asked to engage in hypothetical trade-offs. So you know, how bad would it be if you like lost your leg compared to living a certain number of years in, uh, in perfect health? But the, the problem with these is that these are asking people to make predictions about what they would would choose about experiences they haven't yet had. And and one thing we probably really want to know is, well, how bad is it if your leg falls off? Like what actually, how does that really affect your your well-being as you live it? And that's the the bit which is missing out of qualities and and disability-adjusted life years as well. Um, So this approach in, you know, taking the objective in this case approach, it's common outside outside effective altruism. uh, It's kind of been the the, the workhorse within it. So this is how how GiveWell has been doing things. Uh, looking at years of doubled income and comparing that against the value of a life saved. Um, And I don't want to kind of beat up on GiveWell here. They've done an enormous amount of amazing work. I find what they do really inspiring. And they're using the the sort of objective measures which are just kind of common in society. But I think um, we can can do better. There there are now better methods that we can use and we should move to moving those. Okay, so a response to this is, uh, well, Okay, fine, I guess, I guess we do care about happiness, but you know we're gonna have to stick with these objective things because we can't really measure it. And so my response is, well, well we can. Um, the Office of National Statistics in the UK, this is how, 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 it, how, how, how we do it here. So there are four questions which ask are asked to about 300,000 people a year. Uh, there is a overall, how satisfied are you with your life? And you can see from this that about 33% of people say that they are eight out of 10. Uh, to what extent do you feel, uh, you feel things in your life are worthwhile? How happy did you feel yesterday? And then how anxious did you feel yesterday? You can see that the, the anxious one is sort of reverse, uh, reverse coded. And you can also see that there's sort of a, a, like a similar pattern here. There are these different questions picking out different elements of well-being, but they're giving us kind of broadly the, the same result. And so the, the suggestion then is that we should replace the objective indicators approach with well-being adjusted life years, well-be. So what's a well-be? A well-be is a one point change on a zero to, to, to 10 scale for one year. So just sort of the same idea as the quality, but we're just measuring something different. And um, you might think, well, what's, you know, what's, what, what's happened? Why did people start to think that measuring people's feelings was a sensible thing you could do? You know, isn't it also objective? How would you know? And the way that you test these things is by seeing how they, how they behave in the world, what their associations are. So um, uh, research into well-being, and there's now been lots of it because people have been sort of um, like skeptical that you can really rely on this stuff. So the sort of things you find is that, uh, is that highest happiness and life satisfaction associated with higher income, higher self-reported health, being in a relationship. Uh, um, there's a correlation between what you say and what your friends say about you, how, uh, how often you smile. Uh, and that happier and more satisfied people are less likely to commit suicide. So this is, this is telling us really that um, uh, if you want to know how happy people are, asking them how happy are you is actually a pretty good way to find that out. So it's, it's sort of deceptively simple and the, I mean, the alternative to this, uh, to kind of you know, maybe beat up slightly on the Economist, is that if you want to know how someone's life is going, if, if you wanted me to, if you wanted me to know how your life is going, would you rather that I asked you, you know, how are you feeling, or would you rather I looked in your wallet, saw if you're, um, uh, you saw if you're employed, that sort of thing? Like, you know, it seems like we we really want to know what people say about their own lives. That's how we communicate normally, and that's what we should expect when we when we do uh, our prioritisation. You might wonder how, uh, how much we can trust this stuff in an international setting. Are people really, you know, is, is there a common sense of, uh, of what we're, of, of how people are answering these questions? So, so this um, is from the World Happiness Report, uh, and you can see that the, uh, the Scandinavian countries are at the, at the top with an average of about seven and a half out of ten. Uh, I put some, some middle countries here, and then at the bottom you see countries like Zimbabwe and Afghanistan around two and a half. Uh, now, I think this is quite reassuring, I think if, uh, if Afghanistan and Zimbabwe were giving themselves 9 out of 10, we'd really worry that people weren't using this, like, this, this is, is this really that meaningful, but in fact, people do seem to be, um, it, it, is, it is, this is reassuring, I think. And uh, this is part of the reason why there's been such an increase in, in research in this, that people have thought, yeah, okay, this is what we care about, turns out we can measure it, okay, let's, let's see what we can, we can find, if there's been a, so I think this is now, now taking off. Uh, There are, of course, some challenges with happiness data. So um, with with data quality, one question that I find I spend lots of my time talking about uh, can we really trust happiness data? I did my, my, this is one one big topic in my PhD. Uh, One question you would ask is about are the scales linear? Is going from a four to a five, the same as going from an eight to a nine. Another question is about comparability. Is your seven out of 10 the same as my seven out of 10? I'm not, not loving this clicker. Good luck with this mark. Um, uh, Questions of data availability, particularly in in low-income countries. So if you just don't, you know, you want the survey data, but it's not there. So what do you do? Uh, And then there are questions of, I've called these data interpretation, but you might think these are moral philosophy, just sort of straightforward moral philosophy questions. So you've got happiness and you've got life satisfaction. If they differ, what should you choose? How do you trade them off? How do you think about improving, uh, uh, trading off, uh, increasing quality of life against quantity of life? and I think these aren't unique challenges. I mean, whatever you measure, you're gonna have some, some issues with it. I think the issues here are, uh, are not obviously much, much worse than they would be if you were uh, taking the, the alternative approach, although we'll see, see what Mark says. Um, and the sort of overall uh, flavor of response to this is to say that I think we should, take, we should think something similar about the well-being approach that Winston Churchill said about democracy, which is just, it's the, it's, the, it's the worst method apart from all the others that have been tried. We shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. Uh, there's, there's some really useful information we can gather, which currently we're not making that much use out of. Uh, the third bit is that our predictions about happiness are, are are often wrong. Okay, so so why think that? You might think, okay, look, we, we care about this, we can measure it, but you know, why bother? Aren't we? You we know, were just getting it right at the moment. And the kind of boring but obvious claim here uh, is uh, is one of the ones which was the genesis of effective altruism. So. Uh, Toby Ord comparing different interventions in global health, measured in terms of disability adjusted life years, which is sort of a sister of QALYs, uh, found that there's a, a really big difference between the best things and then the things which are good, and we don't know in advance what they are, so we should do research. So hopefully that, you know, the, the idea we might be wrong and we should find out and look at the evidence is, is not too much of a hard sell. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. Um, uh, okay, so, but that's really, like, that's not particularly informative. Okay, we could be wrong, but, like, how could we be wrong? And I think the interesting uh, research and perspective here is um, is from the psychological literature on failures of, a- of affective forecasting or miswanting. How do we get it wrong? And to cut a long story st- uh, short, the, um, uh, the story here is that we're generally pretty good at whether things are good or bad, but we're not very good at predicting how good how bad they are, and for how long they're going to affect us. So, you know that being dumped is probably bad, but you, what you might get wrong is how uh, is how bad that is, and, and how quickly it will take you to get over it. Um, and one one sort of particular source of bias and explanation are uh, focusing illusions. Um, so, when you're imagining what it's like to be someone else, you kind of you pick up the the bits which are which are kind of easier to imagine, easier to visualize. Um, So if you're imagining someone really wealthy, you're imagining what it would be like to be a billionaire, then you're probably not accounting for what it's like for that person once they've got used to it and then just kind of living their their ordinary life. Uh, And, of course, this raises the question, well, okay, have we got the priorities wrong? Um, It might just be that there's a bit of bias, but a bit of bias might not be enough to to actually change what we're doing. Uh, And that's actually what got uh, got me looking into this um, uh, during my PhD. Uh, here's, here's a picture of me um, giving a talk at Effect Global in, in 2017, full of uh, youth and vigour before effective altruism stripped it out of me. <laughs> um, and at that point, I was, I was this was midway through my PhD, and I'm sort of speculating. Well, oh, we take this happiness seriously stuff. You know, what might we find? I'm talking about pain and mental health. I talk about the. The, um, the possibility of using psychedelics as a way of uh, treating mental health, which certainly has, has picked up. But really then I, I, like I was speculating, I was saying, look, we should look into this and see what we find. Um, and lots of people thought this was, this was mad, this was a waste of time, but fortunately there were um, a, few, uh, a few donors uh, who, who, who backed me and thought this was sensible. And so as a result of this, I was able to set up the, the Happy Lives Institute and actually d- uh, do the work and investigate. Um, So, we're a small team. We don't have open philanthropy funding yet, but we're working on it. And I really want to thank my, uh, particularly my two colleagues, uh, uh, Joel Maguire and Samuel Dupre, who have worked on this so assiduously for for the last few years and and really kind of uh, allowed this this to happen. And the plan when we started was to reassess, in terms of well-being adjusted life years, the sort of canonical uh, EA uh, recommendations to see if taking happiness seriously would change the priorities, a, a sort of proof of concept. And we compared four interventions, cash transfers, treating depression, deworming, and bed nets. Uh, three of those four are sort of part of the familiar list and treating depression is, is new and we wanted to see how it would stack up. Um, and at the end of 2022, we completed that and, um, and we thought we concluded that it does. So let me very briefly tell you about our research, uh, our results. Um, we did lots of, lots of work on this. I, don't, I can't go into to the details. I'll just kind of give you the highlights. So if we're thinking how does this change things, then we need to start with, with kind of the existing view. So I'm taking the, the cost effectiveness numbers from GiveWell. This is in comparisons of, uh, of cash transfers. So cash transfers are, are cost-effective as cash transfers. Um, GiveWell hadn't had analysis on treating therapy, treating therapy for depression, treating depression with therapy. Uh, so presumably it's less cost-effective than cash transfers or anything else. Uh, Deworming the world, um, uh, about 18 times better, and Muriel nets about 13 times. Um, and let me tell you about wh- what we find. So that's the background view. Uh, what do we get to and how does that change? So we looked at uh, cash transfers and, pr- and group therapy for depression. We did a, a meta-analysis of each. So we looked at the available studies, um, had about 140,000 people total in, in, uh, across both. So we really tried to look, look at all the available evidence that was there. We did some kind of technical jiggery-pokery to convert it into, into well-being scores. And what we found was that the $1,000 cash transfer has about the same per-treatment effect as um, group therapy um, for for well-being. You can see that the the cash transfer does have an effect, it has a much longer-lasting effect, but the effect from treating depression is uh, is larger, but it it, it fades sooner. Um, So the effects are about the same, but um, it it costs you, uh, if you're delivering a $1,000 cash transfer, it costs you a bit more in total to, to do that. Um, and then treating depression is about $100, $150 per person. And so, what drives the difference is the, is, um, uh, is the cost. Uh, we, um, at the end of last year, we looked at deworming. So, there's been sort of open questions over whether deworming has a long term effect. Um, we looked at that there's kind sort of one study that people are familiar with, that the, kind of the, the Givell uses and other people use to track, to track the uh, effects of deworming over time. Uh, there was some happiness data in there, which um, it turned out no one else had looked at, um, and so this is the effects of, of deworming over time. You can see that they're not statistically different from zero. Uh, and if you take these very seriously, then uh, you'd conclude that deworming is making people worse off. Uh, so we just assume that there's no kind of no clear effects here, which is, like I say, consistent with this kind of wider picture of you know it's unclear if it, um, how much long term effect there is. And, um, of course, the point of a happiness approach is that, you have, let's say you have your deworming, that should change your life in some ways. You should pick up those changes, and then um, the changes in people's life circumstances should be reflected in their self-reports. That's what we see with the rest of the literature. So you know, if it makes a difference, you should, you should hope that you should see it. Um, so here's what, uh, what we get through the subjective well-being approach. Um, we found cash transfers are effective as a cash transfers that 's the benchmark we find that a therapy for depression is about eight times more cost effective so that 's like that 's you know <laughs> the, the really big result because that hadn 't featured in in our understanding before but taking a well being approach allows us to, uh, to, to to measure that and uh, and to find it we 're not so sure about the uh, about the effect on deworming um, and uh, so I've just given you the, the overall numbers, but I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of uncertainty here and we, we've tried to model that. Uh, the, the line in the middle is, is deworming. That, the fact that just represents that you know, it's, a, it's a very cheap intervention with an uncertain effect, so the, uh, the distribution is really large. Um, and um, uh, yeah, so that's how we kind of got to our, our, our results for these different quality of life interventions. Um, so GiveWell have also uh, just in the last couple of months they 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 looked at our numbers and they uh, and they kind of formed their own view and um, so GiveWell's conclusion was that therapy for depression is about twice as good as cash transfers and I want to say three quick things about this first it's I'm really really delighted that. Um, uh, givewell took an interest in this and they thought okay this well-being approach is is reasonably sensible secondly i, I think it's it's significant that um, even on the sort of more more skeptical view that uh, givewell ended up taking the uh, it's still twice as effective as cash transfers so there's you know there's there's real kind of agreement here that we're finding something new when we're looking at improving quality of life uh, and thirdly uh, overall we we kind of didn't find much reason to update in result of GiveWell's analysis. So what GiveWell, the GiveWell researcher had done is look at the bits of evidence and say, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure about this. Um, and so our response to this was that we didn't, we didn't actually think there, were, there was strong evidence provided uh, that, that, um, that should merit those reductions. Um, the further question is, well, okay, the, I've given you these quality of life in- interventions, but how does this compare to saving lives? That's something that, that's very um, kind of commonly popular. And um, so I was looking at this during my PhD as well, and what's really sort of surprised me is, is that there hasn't been very much attention given or recognition for the fact like, this, that actually these questions are just much more complicated than, than we might think. So I'm, I'm not gonna go through all of the details, but there are different um, philosophical issues about how bad death is. Does life sort of start at birth? Do you, uh, is, is, it worse to, is it better to save a, a young child than a, than a newborn? Uh, it should be maybe it, it should be more interested in living well than in living long, and there's a further question of kind of where where the neutral point is. When is life as good as death? If you're putting it on your zero to ten scale, is it zero out of ten? Is it five out of ten? Is it somewhere in between? How do we know? And these are genuinely difficult questions. So there is no sort of one simple answer for how to do the comparison. Um, it's actually you know, much more complicated than that, uh, and so. I don't have time to explain this, but w- what we found is that when we make what we kind of l- using our well being numbers, we looked at a range of a range of sort of reasonable um, spread of opinion that we think you could have, and we found that it makes quite a big difference. So there are some assumptions under which uh, the, the bed nets end up being more cost effective than the therapy, but under, under the rest of the assumptions, they end up not being more cost effective and they can be quite a lot less cost effective. And so this is, you know, it's almost unsurprisingly that. Um, your moral assumptions are going to do lots of the work here. Um, so that's where we kind of where we get to in the end. Uh, as I say, with the, the how you think about comparing improving lives to saving lives really depends upon the assumption. So we find it, you know, it's kind of between one and, uh, and 12 times as good as cash transfers. And then GiveWell ended up concluding it was about nine times better than cash transfers. But that's as a result of kind of plugging in their particular uh, set of assumptions, sort of the house view, and I think their assumptions are amongst the least favourable you could take towards uh, saving lives. So let me uh, wrap up. So what I I hope uh, I've been able to convince you of is that we should take happiness seriously, and that we can. Happiness matters, we can measure it, we're often wrong about it, Uh, and certainly it's telling us a new story when we're we're focusing on improving people's lives. There's a really different picture from what we think matters from from what, what perhaps does. In the Happy Lives Institute, our, um, our next steps um, are to search for even more cost-effective interventions and in organisations. We currently have one charity that we recommend, which is Strong Minds. Um, that's, you know, we'd like to have other things that we recommend. It's not that we think the other things are terrible. That's just all we've kind of we've been able to look at and, and vet. We hope to have a couple of other things uh, in mental health and not mental health by the end of this year. But you know, I can't kind of um, depend how the research goes. Want to do foundational work on developing the well-being methodology, so working out some of the kinks, such as you know, is your seven out of ten the same as my seven out of ten, and then kind of broad global priorities research. Um, So you know, one thing I'm I'm sort of starting to think about is you know, how can how or if uh, if and how can well-being the well-being approach help us with issues related to artificial intelligence? Is it part of the alignment problem? Maybe. Uh, So to remind you then of, of what I said at the start, there are. That there are two goals here. There's the, sort of the short term goal, which is just to find more impactful funding opportunities. And we hope to do that, but really the longer term piece is to uh, change, our, change our paradigm, to think differently about, uh, about measuring what matters and how we can do good and to sort of engineer wider societal change as a result of that. So I think this is, um, I think this is an exciting moment. The idea that we should take happiness seriously is an idea which stretches back to the enlightenment, if not further. But now is the first time in human history we can do this in a scientific way. We can really find out what improves people's lives and realize this this dream of working out how best to improve the human lot. So I think this is a a big moment. And uh, of course, you can help. So you can help with your careers, your choice of jobs, you can help with your donations, and you can help with your advocacy um, by by, by, by promoting these ideas. Um, Victor Hugo said that nothing is Nothing is, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. I think this idea's time has come. Thank you. So this is the things I said. I've got some references to things I said which I think you can find through the Swapcard app.
2: All right, cool, thanks Michael. Oh, my mic's coming on, lovely. Alright, so this is a rejoinder. Michael the clicker is indeed problematic. Um, All right. so I just want to thank Michael, well first everyone for coming. This is the biggest audience I've ever presented my nerd interests to, um, so I really appreciate that. I want to thank Michael for inviting me to comment. As you'll see, my comments tend to be fairly spicy and provocative, so I think that was a very robust act on Michael's part. Um, And I also want to preface my comments by saying that I'm uh, broadly, think that HLI's work is a step in the right direction for effective altruism. Uh, broadly, this idea that we should take subjective opinions about well-being seriously, I strongly agree with. Um, and I also think that the idea that we should focus on good lives, not just more lives, uh, is a very important consideration. My concerns are more about happiness and life satisfaction as ways of cashing out well-being. I don't think that's a particularly good definition. Um, I really don't like life satisfaction scales very much at all. Um, but, as Michael said, if you knew how the sausage was made on income measures and preference satisfaction measures, you might also be very concerned about them. Um, I'm generally, uh, like cognitive behavioural therapy, which is, as I understand it, what Strong Minds uh, advocates for and is part of their intervention, uh, is a fairly narrow conceptualization of and treatment for mental health. It's, it's very important, but I worry sometimes that it's, it uh, really takes oxygen away from a broader and richer understanding of mental health. Um, that would be less individualistic and less biomedical so one that takes more account of structural factors sociological issues and then also the kind of narrative of a person's life and why they've developed mental health issues and then one of my biggest concerns and this is germane to effective altruism more generally is that there's a kind of fixation on cost-benefit analysis and randomized controlled trials and i think that's quite harmful to a good understanding of well-being Uh, And interventions to improve it and I stress the word fixation here so it's not that these methods aren't important it's that we shouldn't be narrowly fixated on them Um, okay so uh, as uh, Bridget very kindly mentioned I do have this book out um, where I talk a lot about all sorts of different theories of well-being and propose my own I'm not going to talk about it today Um, I just want to stress that uh, there are a lot of different ways of thinking about well-being um, and the something that is I think not particularly well understood and so I thought I'd mention it briefly is that the Daly and quality measures like most theories of uh, welfare coming out of economics are grounded in what Michael called the desire satisfactionism view or the idea that what's good for you is getting what you want is satisfying your preferences so it's not that economists blindly just care about income because they're fools um, the reason why they care about income is because it's a proxy for preference satisfaction um, But there are a bunch of other well-being theories that I'm much more compelled by. So Michael's list, um, understandably, because it's his background, is really only presenting the canonical theories from analytical philosophy, and is missing a very important one, I would say, the eudaimonic theory, which is that uh, well-being is about living in a particular way, in a way that accords with human nature. I don't really like the Aristotelian version of that, um, but out of psychology, you get eudaimonic theories that are what I would call functionalists. They really take seriously the kind of organism that a human is, what we have evolved to be, what it means for that organism to flourish, um, what it means for it it to be going well. Um, And I think it's quite important for us when we think about mental health in particular, but also broadly when we conceptualize good lives to have this kind of rich functionalist account in there. I think it's also very important to bring in the perspective from geography, sociology, epidemiology, which is broadly that well-being is an emergent property of complex social environmental structures or systems. So individual well-being is a function of the setting in which that individual is, and the well-being of that setting, so the well-being of a community or a village, for example, is a function of the individuals in that setting, Uh, and we need to take seriously that kind of structural interaction. Um, I think both of these perspectives are especially crucial for understanding mental health, um, less so perhaps for understanding happiness. I think also worth um, just giving a brief shout out to the capabilities approach. The capabilities approach is the dominant theory of well being in development policy and development studies globally. And it's basically the idea that well being is a matter of having a larger option set of possible lives from which to choose. So we're trying to expand what people can do with their life, what people can be. In their life by giving them education, health, political enfranchisement, these sort of things. All right, now uh, the typical reaction of philosophers to these kind of perspectives coming out of um, psychology and geography and etc. is to say oh well, this uh, you're getting your intrinsic what's intrinsically well-being and what's merely instrumental to it confused. So you're you're collapsing well-being as an outcome with the causes of well-being. And the rejoinder to this in this kind of psych literature is to say that this is a false distinction, that actually the ingredients and the outcomes are bound up in such intimate ways that it's very difficult to separate them conceptually. And more importantly, that it's not useful. It's not a constructive thing to do to separate them. So I'll try to give you one example um, when we're thinking about the economic definition of well-being as preference satisfaction. So economists would argue that what makes your life go well is satisfying not any old preferences, but rational preferences, well laundered preferences that you've really thought about and digested. And this cashes out very nicely when we're th- looking at optimal gambles. So when we're thinking about things like how to save for retirement and you're thinking about the interest rate and how much money you have to invest in this kind of stuff, you can really think about that in formal rational mathematical terms but it doesn't work well for most preferences that you have in your life. So it doesn't work well for thinking about what occupation should I have? What university should I go to? Who should I be friends with? What should my hobbies be? These kind of questions are not optimal gambles really in any way. They're things that we think about, when we are thinking about how to be rational about those preferences, we might think of something like, do these preferences, do satisfying these preferences integrate, so harmonize my reasons, So why do I think this is a valuable thing to do with my time? My motivations. Do I actually get out of bed and go and do it on the basis of my reasons? And then my emotions. So when I'm engaged in these things, do I feel good about it? Do I feel good about it? If you are engaged in a bunch of stuff that you think is very reasonable, um, you've been convinced by, I don't know, Peter Singer that you should do it, um, but you're really struggling to find the motivation, then you're not particularly well harmonized, and it's gonna be very hard for you to maintain that behavior. Equally, if you're doing something that, um, I don't know, you have a lot of motivation for, perhaps because your parents are really putting a lot of pressure on you to do it, um, but it just makes you feel kind of crap, like you don't enjoy p- doing uh, scales on the cello or the piano, then again, you're not gonna be able to sustain that uh, motivation, you're gonna feel bad about your life, you're probably gonna think your life is not going well. So we're going to be looking for preferences that make sense of all these different aspects of our psychology, and we can see there that a lot of these distinctions that philosophy makes kind of collapse um, when we take a step back from thinking about what well-being is to thinking about how we get it. Um, So when you're thinking more practically, you find that you need to think about hedonism and mental states, you need to think about the process, so this eudaimonic idea of how are we living, you need to think about what your preferences are and what your goals are in life, what you're trying to achieve, Uh, and you also need to think about all those items on the objective list that Michael mentioned, like knowledge and virtue, that help you achieve those things. And this kind of leads to this idea that well-being is a process as much as it is an outcome, and then statements like this from Michael Bishop's uh, 2015 book, um, that well-being is a complex causal network, that all sorts of stuff is interrelated in it. Oops, I went too far. All right, now your reaction to this might be, Mark, this is all getting way too complicated. All right, we we can't do robust analytical work with this kind of stuff, can't we just use life satisfaction as a proxy for all this complexity that you've outlined? Can't we just do some randomised experiments, use some powerful statistical methods, and then we can all things held constant away, all this structural sociological stuff that you're banging on about, and then we can just do some rigorous analysis. Now, I have some sympathy for this take, so particularly that at the moment we assume away Um, In cost-benefit analysis using income a lot of important stuff like loneliness because we're not trading loneliness in markets and so we can't put a price on it and Doing life satisfaction analysis allows us to fold more of these important things into our policy analysis But broadly speaking, I think this is the wrong way of thinking about what we're doing here What this is doing is assuming away the complexity and then thinking that you've got something really rigorous left behind But actually you've assumed away all the important stuff Um, I think this is uh, very representative of Urizen. I don't know if people here are familiar with Urizen. This is a figure from William Blake's mythology. William Blake is a a very famous British painter. Urizen is his personification of reason gone overboard. Um, So reason kind of forgets this glowing heavenly place from which it's come, reaches out into the darkness with its measurement instrument, divides the world into categories, uh, and from there thinks that it has solved all the problems and it knows everything. Um, But actually it's forgotten all the important stuff. Now, if that metaphor was a bit too, um, bit too woo for you, um, the slightly more uh, accessible way of thinking about this is the, is the spotlight problem. So, looking for, you've lost your keys, and you're not looking for them where you lost them, but where the light is. Um, so, I think broadly what I'm getting at is that uh, in, in just using life satisfaction as a proxy for this more complex notion of well-being, uh, in assuming away a lot of this complexity in our statistical models, Um, we're not actually getting to more rigorous analysis we're getting to a dumber analysis Um, now i don't want to go into the ins and outs of the cost benefit analysis that was done on uh, stronger lives and that michael's team has done i think they've done a really good job of it there is uh, this really good uh, forum post on the ea forums that goes into a lot of the ins and outs of that if you are interested one point that i do want to draw your attention to is that one of the main concerns around that cost-benefit analysis was that people were saying, um, were kind of giving an indication to the interviewer that the Stronger Minds intervention had been really effective because they thought that in so doing, they would be given more money. Um, Now, that might raise concerns about the cost-benefit analysis, but what it really undermines for me is that in order to understand what's going on here, we need qualitative methods. Um, Now... (laughs) This is uh, part of what we call causal process tracing and I think this is becoming increasingly common in even the most extreme sort of ideologue uh, randomized controlled trial circles that you need to have qualitative aspects to a lot of your randomized interventions in order to understand what happened to get a kind of rich sense of how things work not just whether they work. Um, I think similar kind of story with the searchlight problem when we think about Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy, it's very useful to do cognitive behavioral therapy, it's a really good treatment for a lot of symptoms of mental health, it can even treat some of the causes of mental health, like people ruminating on their body image, Um, but it's uh, potentially, if you use it as a narrow lens for understanding mental health, it's going to distract you from deep and complex issues like bipolar disorder, complex trauma, Um, and these sort of things are quite prominent In the context in which a lot of effective altruists would like to take action so in a lot of developing countries you have heaps of trauma domestic violence poverty histories of warfare this kind of stuff that give rise to very complex mental health issues in which case cbt is a bit too narrow a lens now maybe you'd say that this band-aid is still valuable i think that's absolutely true my concern is again just about a reductionist approach and missing the forest for the trees Um, a big concern with not taking these structural issues seriously and understanding the context in which we're working is that the external validity of any randomized control trial that you do is poop um, because you're not going to be able to replicate the context in any other further situation so as much as you've got wonderful internal validity there you don't have external validity and so the value of that exercise is really not that high a brief word on subjective measures i love subjective measures completely agree with Michael that we need to take subjective measures more seriously I'm even more extreme than Michael I think we should take qualitative data from therapy sessions into consideration that's how hardcore I am about subjective measures I also think we could use um, a lot of these longer psychometric methods uh, like the well-being profile which in the short form is 15 questions my concern with life satisfaction scales Michael alluded to some of these issues this is ongoing work Michael's part of an adversarial collaboration with me and some other colleagues I'm the most skeptical Michael's probably the most optimistic um, I'm very concerned about the interpersonal comparability of these instruments um, imagine two individuals right they have exactly the same life and not only do they have exactly the same life but they assess that life exactly the same way so in their minds they make the same assessment as to how well their life is going what's different about these two individuals is how they map that assessment into the response categories on the scale. So exactly the same people, exactly the same lives. This person maps that life, LI star, into a six on the scale. This other person maps that into an eight on the scale. And so we as the researcher see the eight and think that the other person is better off than the first person, but they're in fact exactly the same. They just have different reporting functions. And we're only now starting to do work unpacking the reporting function. And I think that work is... uh, pretty scary Um, but uh, as I said adversarial collaboration maybe my colleagues will have uh, less uh, concern about the things that we're finding and we keep an eye out for that research I want to stress here that I really love randomized control trials I love cost-benefit analysis my first book advocated for all that sort of stuff was broadly technocratic love evidence-based policy what I'm really advocating for is to use some of the still very robust complementary or additional approaches And I'm thinking in particular of agent-based models. So agent-based models are capable of embedding individuals in structures and then looking at how those structures affect um, all sorts of uh, interventions that we might put into play into those structures. These came out of people who were dissatisfied with what they were learning from randomized controlled trials. So we did tons and tons, hundreds of randomized controlled trials and obesity interventions, and we just found that they weren't really telling us much because every intervention was contingent on everything else going on in the system. So we then took the coefficients from those interventions, used them to initially parameterize an agent-based model, and then run simulations so that we can learn how things work in the structure. So I'm not suggesting that uh, HLI and the effective altruism movement more broadly needs to use really woolly like sample size of five qualitative methods, but I am suggesting that we need to use agent-based models causal process tracing, and some of the more sophisticated mixed methods that are out there. Um, This is not something that you come across in the economic space at the moment. So I think broadly we need to get out of the economic space and into the wider discourse. I would like to see a much more thorough engagement with philosophy of science in this space. Science is not necessarily about experiments, and it's not about confirming things. It's not about certainty. It's about falsification, what you don't know, not what you do know. All right, Um, I've got to stress that this is not a problem that I think is inherent to, sorry, this is not exclusive to uh, the Happier Lives Institute and the work they're doing. I think this is generally germane to effective altruism. So the effectiveness is really analytical effectiveness. It's about what can we know with certainty, not what seems to be having the big impact. The uh, iconic case of this or the the archetype was this big debate in development economics between Lamp-Pritchett Um, and the randomistas so Esther de and Abhijit Banerjee where Pritchett was arguing that the biggest effect on anti-poverty in the last 50 years has been the rise of the Asian tiger economies this was driven by things like commerce institutions industrialization all things that we can't do randomized controlled trials and cost-benefit analysis on but are massively impactful and so the idea here is right do we want to be certain is that what is effective or do we want to be right and having a big effect oops sorry okay so what's my upshot to conclude so I totally agree with Michael that effective altruism should think harder about well-being what does it mean for a life to go well how can we promote good lives not just more lives however I think that we should think about good life in a multi-dimensional way in a rich way that takes into account structure and sociological conditions I think we shouldn't fixate on RCTs and CBA shouldn't use them as a hammer in search of nails effective treatments for complex problems are likely to be messy, and we need to develop epistemic frameworks for appreciating that messiness and tolerating it, not assuming it away. All right, thanks very much.
0: Okay, great. Thanks so much for that, Mark and Michael. Um, We don't have that long. Oh, we've got maybe 10 minutes for questions. So if you do have questions, please submit them through the Swapcard app. Um, but maybe just to start, uh, Mark, I might start with you, yes. and um, uh, I think you know one of your last points was that effective treatments for complex problems are likely to be messy. Um, do you think that this messiness means that we shouldn't be trying to, su- to find solutions that, sca- that could scale? Or do you think that, um, I guess, scaling is incompatible with, I guess, the, the c- complex and messy reality of the world?
2: All right. Yeah, thanks. Good question. Um, I guess there's two, two things that come to my mind here. So the, the first one is that if you have a small scale intervention, which I think is, is mostly what effective altruism and give well kind of works on, like deworming is a discrete intervention that you do. And then if it works in, in a pilot, then you scale it up to a, a much larger scale. Uh, I think you can do that even with messy interventions that are hard to evaluate and hard to understand fully. Um, it's, not, it's not, the scale doesn't affect the issue of messiness. The, the messiness is around how certain you can be in what's going on. And if you see um, something that seems to be having a really big impact, but you don't know that through a randomized controlled trial, you know it through some kind of combination of mixed methods, and you have confidence in it, in a kind of Bayesian sense, and then you can update, I think you can totally scale in that circumstance, no problem. The other thing that comes to my mind is that a lot of the really effective interventions are scale interventions. I think that's kind of Pritchett's point is that um, when you're thinking about industrial policy or coordinating foreign direct investment, that's a very high scale intervention. Um, it can't be done at a small scale, um, but precisely because it's so high scale, because it's macro, you basically can't approach it experimentally. Um, and so in that case, again, you're gonna be messy, you're gonna be a bit uncertain, but I think that's fine.
0: Yeah. Okay. Michael, is there anything you want to say on that or?
1: Yeah. So I, I actually don't uh, enormously disagree with, sorry, that's disappointing. I don't enormously disagree with, with Mark over this. I mean, so I think it's, um, it's in some ways Mark is sort of pressing the um, kind of systemic change uh, objection to to effective altruism. Um, you know, let's think big rather than you know, focus on atomic changes. Um, and so the, the kind of project um, HLI has been playing is very much in, in the vein of the, the man under uh, under lamppost, looking for his keys. So we're doing, we're, we're seeing where people are. We're doing apples to apples comparisons. We, you know, if we if we're looking at, if we care about apples anyway, then we'll, you know we'll, we'll compare you to them um, you know, to, to, to some other ones, and that's what we what we've done. But I you know I I sort of I I have sympathy with the the idea that you, know, you should think about uh, th- thinking at larger scale. I don't know exactly what I would kind of uh, recommend in that vein, taking a subjective well-being approach. But I would you know I, w- I would like to 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 look at um, uh, policies. Um, changes and you know, what philanthropists can can suggest there, in addition to just you know small scale bits and pieces.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess talking about comparisons, we've got a question here about whether well-bees can be converted to qualies, um, and if there's been any research looking at the if there's um, I guess correlations between the two.
1: Yeah. So, so there's um, I can't kind of give you exact sort of details and specifications, but part of the what kind of motivated the well-being approach is that. Um, some sort of indicative evidence on this is that when you ask people to engage in trade-offs for qualities, people might say that some difficulty walking is about as bad as moderate anxiety or depression uh, when they do the trade-offs. And if you think about it, there's that, that, that just no way that's right. Uh, it can't possibly be the case that really the, um, they have the same effect on people's subjective well-being. Um and so the bit that seems missing from the quali relates to this challenge with hypothetical trade-offs and effective forecasting. We're sort of not very good at imagining people's inner mental lives. We're much better at the kind of the, the things we can picture in our minds. So the sort of the, suge- the broad suggestion, the motivation is that qualis are gonna underrate uh, mental health, pain, kind of inner anxiety and suffering, and they're gonna do much better. They're gonna be sort of overrating the, the stuff you can, you can see, like you know, having your leg fall off.
0: Yeah. But um, isn't anxiety and depression included in quality evaluation?
1: Uh, yeah, but it's one of the it's one of the parts of the quality. Yeah. so there's, th- there's other things there as well.
0: Okay, so it's not given enough weight perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I think both of you kind of alluded to the evidence for Strong Minds and we've got a question here about um, I guess the strength of the evidence so Michael how confident do you feel about the effectiveness of the uh, Strong Minds program Um, and do you know if there's been much work looking at the longer term outcomes Um, I I guess either on subjective well-being but perhaps also on um, other metrics of income education or other measures of health?
1: Yeah, so there's been quite a bit of debate on this, which I think is is really excellent. I mean, that's how you, you move things forward by the kind of clash of ideas as we're, we're seeing happen in, in lifetime. Um, and I, I, kind of, I can't re- recapitulate the, the whole debate, but I mean, what we did was not just kind of look at one study. We did a, a meta-analysis. We looked at all the evidence together. We compared the program Strong Minds does to other sort of similar programs. It's in sort of the, the same region of effectiveness as them. We're not just like, Looking at Strong Minds' own sort of data and their, you know, what they they say in their publicity materials and taking that at face value, uh, that would be a kind of a um, a, a silly thing to do. Um, but maybe the the bit that's kind of more reassuring is that uh, it's kind of the the analysis um, GiveWell did, where even kind of they, they look at us, they apply some sort of researcher-based sort of subjective haircuts, where they're a bit more suspicious of a bit uh, of bits and pieces, and they still come out at saying it's it's two times better than cash transfers. So you know, they're sort of there are disagreements over evidence. I mentioned that we sort of we, we accounted for uncertainty in that, but we still think that we like um, it's a really interesting finding, and uh, we think it does does stand out as you know the, the most the most cost-effective way of improving lives that that we found so far.
0: Yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, certainly, it's reassuring to get that um I guess triangulation of um, yeah,
1: that's really helpful. And so even if you have reservations, we don't think it's the case that uh, say cash transfers look more cost-effective. Um, so you know, e- even with uncertainty, it still seems like the best bet.
0: Yeah. Um, we've got a question here from Nicole, who um, asks, even if it's considered a global priority issue, the well-being cause, as you might know, receives less than 1% of total EA funds. Um, why do you think that is? And maybe Michael, I'll go to you first and you know, if you've got anything to
1: add. Um, <laughs> I was about to say, how long have you got? But I know exactly, I can see the clock ticking down.
0: <laughs> Not that long Uh
1: Yeah, I, I guess I, I often wonder about this. <laughs> I wish I knew why. Um, I think it's kind of part of the story is that what we're trying to, like, you know, sort of this, this conventional approach to how you think about cost effectiveness and how you think about impacts so it's this objective indicators approach. And that's kind of the way society does it. You know, Effective altruism is a, is a, is a mirror of society in, in some ways. Um, and so I've been kind of, I've Pressing uh, other organisations to say, well, let's do more on this, and uh, I think I've I've brought some of them round over time. But you know, it it does kind of uh, take time to to kind of change people's views.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Um, we've got a couple of minutes left, but I also appreciate people might need to head out for a meeting, so obviously feel free to do that. Um, Mark, there's a question here for you. Uh, so um, the person says, Mark, I'm sympathetic to your worldview and I wouldn't be afraid of complexity, but I personally found it difficult to derive what you're actually saying organisations like GiveWell should do differently. So concrete actions, how to channel money differently. Um, so what does success li- look like for you if GiveWell were to perfectly follow your recommendations?
2: That's a good question. Um, I think GiveWell like has different sort of normative priorities to me and that's fine. Like GiveWell has more of an emphasis on certainty and that's okay. Um, I I guess the immediate answer that sort of pops into my mind is that I think if you follow the the Pritchett argument, which I guess I'm pretty compelled by that, and Bono's argument, so Bono also saying that aid is a band-aid or a stopgap, and really what you need is commerce, capitalism, Um, amazing turnaround for Bono. I would I guess I'd like to see more involvement uh, in terms of commercial investment into developing countries Um, and you can do that charitably by accepting below market rates of return Um, and so you can look at B Corp certification certified companies you can look at groups that are very uh, genuinely taking the spirit of ESG seriously um, or just fully accepting below market rates of return Once you are commercially invested in a country and you are there for altruistic purposes, you are not going to be doing profit maximizing things like exploiting your labor, um, lobbying the government to create regulations that favor you instead of creating a level playing field for the economy, et cetera. And so you can then be a force at particular tables, you have a particular seat at those tables to get the kind of things that I think a lot of um, randomistas think is impossible to do, like institutional change. Once you are part of the kind of commercial lobby and your interests are just making, making the commercial environment better for everyone, um, then you can advocate for those kind of things. And I think Well could uh, get involved in analyzing those sorts of companies and making recommendations on what they, where you might invest your dollars.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, I wish we had more time to ask more questions because this has been a great discussion um, and thank you both for your presentations. But um, unfortunately we are out of time and the light is flashing angrily at us. Um, But you guys are around for office hours for the next half hour. hour Yeah, and I believe they're just over there. So um, yeah, if you've got your questions, you can uh, go and chat to Mark and Michael there. Uh, But yeah, please join me in thanking our speakers for this great session.